everybody, and welcome to the Medevac Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Myers, joined by our other host today, David Reed. Hello, everybody. Before we hop into today's episode, please keep in mind, if you get something out of today's episode, share it with a friend or family member. It means a lot to us, and it does a lot for the community. Our guest today is Tim Horton. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for How having me. How many times have you gotten Horton Here's Who, by the way? Uh, all the time. Or every single or day. Or Tim Horton's coffee. Yeah, Tim Horton's is a coffee shop. Right? Coffee shop. Yeah. Uh, it's also a coffee but shop. But we shall not mention that. Yeah, no, no barista talk here. No right. barista talk. <laughs> Our Black Rifle Coffee producers are looking at us in disdain. Anyways. <laughs> Two thumbs down from Trey. <laughs> Tim uh, was a Marine mortarman from 2004 to 2006. Um, sustained a few injuries in Af- Afghanistan. Iraq. Just in a few, by the way. Just a couple. Just a couple. He uh, got jumped up and bit in the buttocks with some shrapnel. Ooh, million dollar out. wound. Have you seen a penny of that million dollars? Uh, no. Not quite yet. <laughs> Classic Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, but now Tim is the alumni manager with Wounded Warrior Project. He does a lot of interfacing with wounded individuals here in the uh, South Texas region. Especially Brook Army Medical Center. Bamsey, yes. Yes. Which is where pretty much everyone on the Army and Air Force side. Mo- you know, either Walter Reed... Or Brook Army Medical Center for the most part. Is, so Walter Reed's more Navy, right? Uh, you know, any type of injury, like amputation or anything like that, you have a, a primary is Walter Reed to yeah. go to. Okay. You know, I, I opted specifically for Brook Army Medical Center. That makes sense. Because I love Texas, but Tejas. That's just- Didn't have the option, so I went to Walter Reed. Did you? Yeah. Not at the time. Yeah, Brook Army wasn't really built up yet. So yeah, it was a few years before. So they took me right to Walter Reed. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll dive into that. Well, you know, we'll just, we got to start with how you decided that the military was your lifestyle. You know, so what, what prompted that as a kid, sense of service, free college, we've heard Uh, it all, judge order. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't want to go to college. Really didn't want to go to college Mm. and had that sense of service. My mom and dad were both Marines. Okay. So oh. they were both Marines. Thought that may be the, the challenge for me. I wanted a physical, mental challenge, mm. and I think I got it. How was that, you know, being under the household of two Marines? It's pretty strict. Did you wake up to Reveille every morning? <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad because they were already out by the time I was born. Mm. So it was, you know, it was fun. Mm. My dad actually ended up being a pastor, believe it or not. Oh, okay. No religion, sorry. No, 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 no. It's, uh, <laughs> we we just don't want to hear your opinion on religion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, religion exists. Yeah. You were like no religion, and then I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. Okay. Objectively, acknowledge yeah. it. Yes, of course. <laughs> we're just not going to preach on the show. Is yeah. the only thing. But so yeah. your dad was a, a pastor. That so going from a marine to a pastor. That's uh, maybe a balanced childhood, or and his option in the Marine Corps was go to jail. Or go to the Marine Corps. So that kind of changed the course of his life. Oh, okay. Okay. So you didn't have those options. (laughs) No. (laughs) It was, thank God. It was college or the Marines, and you decided that was it for you. Yep. And so you made your way down to the Marine recruiter, didn't get swooped up by the Air Force. That's impressive. No. (laughs) And how did you choose the job you wanted to do? I don't remember if it was much of an option. It was like, I want to go infantry. And then just kind of the school I went to was just, hey, you're going to be a mortarman. All right. Sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Shooting rounds a long distance. Sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. So you were pretty open to whatever job you ended up landing. Yeah. I knew I wanted to be on the front lines in okay. some way. So that was just kind of 
I don't know. I always had that sense of service and wanting to do something more than I didn't have a family, you know, right out of high school. So no ties. So I could do whatever. And this was 2003 that you enlisted? Yep. So just after 9-11, I mean, the invasion's happening at this time and you're still driving forward. You still want to go and be on the front lines. Oh, absolutely. Okay. What was the general feeling that you had as far as the population went? Does it have an overwhelming patriotic feel to it? Were you ready to go get the bad guys who took down the towers? Or was it just, you know, something that you've always wanted to do? You were going to do that regardless of 9-11? I think it was uh, regardless of 9-11, I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but 9-11, I was a junior in high school, so I think that pushed me a little bit more towards it, okay. more than I would have been, um, you know, to defend this country and our freedoms. So that was just a big motivating factor in me getting there. Mm, that makes sense. So you, uh, how, how long until you ship off to boot camp? And then uh, what was your experience like going through training? Anything that stands out? So looking back, if I could have done it again, I would have joined straight out of high school. I did the delayed entry program. So that was about six months. Okay. So worked at a lumber yard for a while, which was probably one of my most fun times. Mm-hmm. It was working a forklift, um, loading trucks. It was a good time. But looking back, I probably would have joined right out of high school instead of waiting because mm-hmm. it did nothing for me, really. Two years, three years? It was just uh, like six months. Oh, okay. Six, six months. months. So I went, yeah, I was uh, joined in October. Okay. So graduated in May. So yeah, I had a little time in between there. And and went in with that invincible marine mentality right in 2000. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure about that as far as in, invincible. Maybe after stuff happened, I was more so like that. But uh, I mean, I always played sports, super competitive in everything I did. I'm o- always been small, so I've always looked at obstacles as a challenge, mm-hmm. and I loved it. So that's what I looked at the Marine Corps as a challenge. Okay, you're five foot six. You're hundred pounds soaking wet. You can't do this. Well, I'll prove you that I can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have time and time again. So. Yeah. So boot was pretty straightforward. No crazy stories. You made it successfully through. Yeah. It, yeah. No, not, not really any crazy stories. I mean. Okay. And just, then how long until you deployed for the first time? So I went in October 2003, graduated in January of 2004, it would have been, and then deployed in September of 04. So I had a workup mm-hmm. um, before that deployment, some training um, in 29 Palms. Great place, by the way. It's <laughs> supposed to simulate Iraq, but um, it's pretty much just a desert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we had some cool cool trainings out there, a lot of hiking and stuff to prepare. Um, so I felt pretty well prepared, but I don't know if anybody's ever really prepared for what's about to happen. Yeah. So especially not in that time frame. <laughs> yeah. 2003, no one knew what to expect. 2004, same thing. Yeah. And if they did have expectations, they were way outdated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, so you find yourself deploying. To Afghanistan? Iraq. Iraq for the first time in 2003. So right at the height of everybody trying to figure out sandbags on... Um, yep, you know, sandbags, a lot of sandbags. <laughs> yeah. So Welding I, armor. How's your experience off the bird there? 
Um, I mean, it was it was good. It was pretty quiet the first couple of weeks getting yeah. there, just getting used to. Um, the base didn't have much. We had to build a lot of things up. Mm-hmm. Um, Where were you operating out of? So it's called Combat Outpost. Mm-hmm. Um, they just didn't even have cool guy names. Yet. No, it was not not at the <laughs> that, that was outpost. the first base. Um, oh, okay. Which so it was Cop One. It, yeah. yeah. First fob you had, um, but yeah, there wasn't much there. You didn't get to, you didn't get to take a shower for a while. You know, on a deployment, yeah. you're not really worried about showering, but mm-hmm. it would be nice every once in a while to take a shower. But yeah. um, just really taking over for two four, who was there before us and really got banged up mm-hmm. um, or com, combat inefficient, um, where they had so many casualties that you know they had replacements coming in. So I was a little. A little hairy to think about. Yeah, that's got to be kind of a psyche kick, right? Oh, absolutely. A little bit. Get into your head. Start yeah. painting the picture. And yeah, so at that point, you're probably just like, I'm just going to trust my superiors, keep my head down and try to execute whatever they give me. Absolutely. I was just doing what I was told, mm-hmm. trying to stay alive, really. And how did that de- deployment fail, uh, fare for you? Uh, I think the deployment was... Good. The mission over there at the time for us was hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. So we were part of the first elections over there, okay. um, 2004. So we actually set up election polls for the Iraqi people to come vote. Okay. So took over some houses. What were up. your thoughts on that? I mean, I thought it was a good thing in my mind is, yeah. hey, we're, we're doing something for these people. And most people in the news and everywhere don't see it that way, but mm-hmm. they weren't there. So they weren't there. we were trying to help people. Um, we're giving the kids, you know, school supplies, mm-hmm. soccer balls, candy. We did a lot of good, I feel yeah. like. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I felt pretty good about that deployment until I got banged up. But was that the same <laughs> deployment? Yeah. Yeah. That was my first deployment and my last deployment. Any is- hairy situations before that that really got you prepped for that? Or was it just like, that's it. Boom. So, well, there's plenty of those um, where we're just, you know, doing foot patrols and you see somebody poke around a corner and you know in your mind, like, hey, something's going to happen. They poke around the second time, here comes an RPG, Mm -hmm. takeoff running. And so that hit uh, one of the Marines that we were with. I think he lost lost a finger, had some shrapnel. Um, But yeah, quite a few RPGs, Mm -hmm. mortars. Um, we got what's called general quarters on our first base. Okay. So we're getting attacked. So everybody's out ready. <laughs> like this is the end pretty much in your mind. You're like, this is, this is how it ends. So like a full base attack. Yeah. Er- everybody's out. Everybody's got their weapons out up on the post. Um, like they call general quarters and everybody's out trying to, you know, we got the gun trucks out, all that stuff. Very small base, by the way. So it just um, felt like they were lurking at every moment around the corner. Yeah, like you didn't know when something was going to happen, but you knew it I was. Think that's an important concept for our audience to realize too. Is is that you know safety is not implicit. It is not <laughs> implied, especially on a base that is just being established for the first time. You're in a austere environment that's going to kick your butt around any corner. 
Yeah. yeah. And you're not safe sleeping in your own bed at night. No. You, you go back to your room and it's still just as dangerous because they're lobbing mortars at you. Daily. Rocket attacks yeah. daily. From from the night that they're from the moment the sun goes down until the sun comes back up. It's nothing but mortar. And, and the breakfast. balls that they have as well. I remember I was uh, on base and there's two pickup trucks that are driving around this thing. There's people in the back that are lobbing these freaking mortars <laughs> just outside. Two little birds spin up and just do a little gun run real quick, clean it right up. But like the balls, like, yeah. do you not know that that's going to happen? Like, hey, we have Apaches and little birds, dude. Like, <laughs> might want to rethink this one. My goodness. Yeah. And they used to freeze the rounds, right? Do you remember that mm-hmm. one? They'd freeze the rounds and when they thawed out, they'd shoot off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, the weapon that I'm trained in, I'm going to die to, you know, as a mortarman, because I was trained in that. And then you're like, that's what we're getting that's an interesting, beat up by, that's you an know, interesting thought. in my head. And God, I would have hated it. You know, you know, you hear the stories about somebody on a porter shitter. I, I've seen it happen. And, we had, uh, and it's just yeah. horrific. There was like, a, our, our main wait, mortarman got hit by a mortar <sighs> and okay. blown in half. That's yeah. such dark irony, dude. And, and that's what I, I said. I, I remember like just sitting and seeing this and just thinking like, I, I felt kind of bad about that thought too. It was just like, that's fucking ironic. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> By definition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just rough, man. But that, that's, that's gotta be going on in your mind all the time as you're lobbing them, they're lobbing them back at you. Mm. Which we didn't really get to lob a lot, honestly, because we had counter bat with the armory so they got the 120s and I was trained to do 60s and 81s. Mm-hmm. So I got to shoot a few loom rounds, you know, just to illuminate the sky at night and yeah. from an 81. But that's all I got to do as far as my MOS. So you had to carry that bitch? No, I didn't. Oh, thank God. <laughs> no, I didn't. Has tubes around everywhere? No, oh, never did. Yeah, um, I, I felt bad for those guys that would, but yeah, so that's, I really didn't do that overseas. Like mm-hmm. as far as being a mortarman, yeah. I was an infantryman on mm-hmm. the ground, either foot patrols, mobile patrols or observation posts. That's mm-hmm. what I did. My, my rotation. Mm-hmm. And primarily focused on the hearts and minds aspect. Yeah. Time. Yeah. And you, then and just like, oh, go ahead. making sure, uh, nobody's putting in IEDs, nobody's doing anything shady, you know? Uh, Do you feel like the public, the general public there was receptive to the type of work that you were doing? I think a lot of them were, but they were also scared at the same time because they knew if we came by, well... It's dangerous for them. Yeah, it's dangerous for them. So they could potentially get in trouble if like, hey, they talk to the Marines, you Mm -hmm. know, you shouldn't talk to the Marines or the army or whoever it was, like they could get in trouble. Yeah. Or it's like a mark on their door now. Like, absolutely. They know that. Somebody's been here. Yeah. I'm sure your perception of your role was very different going into it as opposed to actually executing, right? Hearts and minds is probably not what you thought a Marine was going to be doing. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't think that would ever be. um, No, like humanitarian effort really is what you think about it. I mean, obviously there was more to it than that, you know, clearing out the bad guys and all that, but there was, in my mind, it's a good, you know, good mission. We're helping people. Yeah. To vote. Yeah. Have the right to vote. Exactly. For their own government and all that. So, yeah. Yeah. Take control of their government and their their country. Their country back, basically. Yep. 
Yeah. So it seems like a, an obviously an honest perception and and the honest type of work. I, I would suppose you'd say. Yeah. But I, I, I hear stories that they go back and forth that a lot of people were apprehensive to commit to that or, or, you know, be willing to accept the help from Americans in that aspect because it did increase the amount of danger yeah. or it did highlight their family as, um, you know, somebody who's willing to help the Americans out. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that a perception that you had? Obviously you were pretty young at the time. You're what, 21, you said? 19, 19. 20. Yeah. 19 yeah. or 20. Yeah. So this, you're pretty young. Are you, do you have that perception at the time or are you just going along with? No, I did have that perception that like, if we went in there, this, there may be a target on these people's back. Mm-hmm. And so you, you think about, I don't think you think about it at the time, but yeah. looking back, I look at it and go, oh man, we might've put some of these families in danger by, mm-hmm. we were trying to help them yeah, in our minds, yeah. but, um, you know, we might've put them in danger by visiting their house, mm-hmm. uh, or kicking them out of their house because we had to use it as a observation post or something like that, which you don't want to kick people out of their house, but. If you yeah. need it for oversight, that's what you got to do. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the it, mission's got to get done. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept too, because uh, I always try to bring it back home and put it in perspective for people. Mm-hmm. Is can you imagine if SWAT came to your house, <laughs> kicked down the door, zip tied yeah. your ass, put you in a freaking room, and then they're like, "I'm going to keep this for Overwatch." Yeah, yeah. Come back and come back in three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever it may Not be. Back in three weeks. I think we gave them some stuff. I, I remember us giving them something, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you're kicking them out of their home. Yeah. So that's that's a lot. Here's a glow stick. Like, <laughs> who who would be happy about that? Yeah. Yeah. No one's going to be happy about it. But you know, I mean, war is war, right? Absolutely. Um, but that that is an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Is is a perspective shift? Is safe safety is implied here in this country? Yes. You know, no one no one could do that. That is against the rules. Until it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of, of the, the public in the U.S., honestly, I, I think they get carried away with their expectations of safety in everyday life. And a lot of people don't realize that around the world, like many people are fighting for their lives daily just to survive. Absolutely. And, and not, not necessarily fighting with other people, but I mean, they have to walk five miles to get clean water or, you know, go hunt for their own food. Like that is a necessity that they fall into. Like a lot of Americans just have that implicit safety and it makes them complacent. Entitlement as yeah. well. You know, there's a sense. I think people take a lot of things for granted. You Absolutely. see that a Everything lot. For granted. Everything. And so for me, my perspective is always looking back, like think about somebody that's deployed right now and not mm-hmm. getting a shower or yeah. getting hot coffee or getting all this stuff that we, we often, all of us do, we take it for granted. Like, Hey, this is nice to have this, but Put your mind back to that time where you were over there and like. You have hey. to experience it to put yeah. it in that kind of perspective though. And it's true. No one's doing it. I mean, like you could, everything that you take for granted, right? I mean, just walk, getting up in the middle of the night for a glass of water, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? In your situation as well. Uh, it, it, it's things that you don't think about unless you put yourself in someone else's shoes who's been through that situation. Talking during, uh, talking at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. In the military, I don't even let you talk when you yeah, eat. Yeah, true. You know what I mean? So it's it's little things like that. But um, but that's the experience that, you know, helps you get through your injury. And I'm sure we'll get to that. So can we walk through like how that day went for you? Well, it was, you know, waking up that day. We were going to be on mobile patrol. I'm usually the rear ve- vehicle 
So I'm the first one out. Um, and then my gun is, you know, letting everybody pass by. Mm. So I think it was probably about eight that morning. Rode out. Um, and this is when we're actually on a built up installation, but there's only a couple ways out. Okay. So it's kind of the same path every day, which looking back, is not very smart. Yeah. Poor tactics. Um, yeah. Um, but that's the only way you can go. Yeah. So, um, go out. I'm providing security. Our first gun truck goes by. Boom. IED. So the IED goes off. It actually hits a civilian vehicle. It almost looks like a um, vehicle-borne IED because mm-hmm. it blows up right underneath the engine of the, the Iraqi, uh, whoever's driving that vehicle. Okay. But it also hits our first gun truck a little bit. Um, so everybody's like, this ha- is remote detonated? Um, that one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're like, everybody's getting out, freaking out. Like, what do we do? What do we do? Let's assess the situation. Everybody's looking. Um, I had five people in my vehicle that day. Me, uh, the A driver, the gunner, and then two in the back. Mm-hmm. Those two in the back got out okay. after that first IED. So they're going to help out, assess the situation. Um, I got out for minutes, and then my A driver, who was in charge of me, he said, get back in. I get back in, and he says, back up, back up, back up, back up. We don't have mirrors on the Humvee, so I'm backing up, but I'm looking back. Doors open. Oh. Um, doors behind me are open because they just got out. The guys behind me just got out. Um, so I'm backing up, and then all of a sudden, uh, the ID went off on me. On that, on my vehicle. So, well, um, so from there, it's it's pretty blurry. Uh, yeah, but I do remember a few things about it. Like, hey, um, you know, my buddy in the turret got hit pretty bad. His legs were just tore apart by shrapnel and stuff. Um, so, me and him got medevaced. The good thing is, looking back, is we were close to base. Yeah, you weren't too too. So, and there was already quite a few people out, so they could get a vehicle out there, got us out in a vehicle, um, and then took us, I believe, to Vlad, the green zone at the time. Uh, Vlad? Yeah. Okay. I believe. I don't know. So it was fast. Yeah, it was fast. And I think if it wasn't fast, then yeah, I probably wouldn't wouldn't have survived. How were you medevaced? Or do you recall? Via convoy? Yeah. Yeah. It was a Humvee. I was in a Humvee. Okay. Uh, so I know like our corpsman was trying to work on me. He was like, where's your dog tags? I'm like, I don't know. It's my left boot that's blown apart. Mm-hmm. Um, in my boot, <laughs> hopefully, if it's there. Um, and they're like, I never wore them around my neck because I hated wearing yeah. those around my neck. And they always get combat. They, they always gave you the silencer, you uh, the little black silencer that the heat would melt it. So yeah. it's yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not using that. So he's asking me some questions, assessing the damage. And then, I mean, I remember getting on the helicopter or whatever, you know, to get medevaced. And my, the last thing that my buddy who was in the gun truck, he was... He was from Missouri. He was country as fuck. <laughs> like always had a large amount of Copenhagen <laughs> in his mouth. And I believe the joke was after that, that Copenhagen was everywhere. Like you just, and he's like, you're going to be all right, man. 
and that's I I fell asleep and I was out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember waking up in Landstuhl, Germany. Mm-hmm. So that was my first. I'm alive, you know. Yeah. And then I'm kind of assessing like my body, and I'm looking at these what I call cheese blocks. They were foam blocks holding my arms together. Huge. Hmm. Um, couldn't really see my leg at the time. Couldn't see anything on my face. Um, but I believe I was there for a couple of days until they got me stabilized. And you sustained a pretty severe eye injury yeah. as well. So it was probably a, just a huge blur. Yeah. And I mean, my eye was, they had one of those patches over it for, I don't know, it was months. Mm-hmm. So I never even really knew if I still had an eye. I didn't know anything like that. So was this in lunch tool? Was that the first time you're assessing your body? Yeah. So I'm, you had no idea of the injuries that you no, before that. I had no idea. Um, there was a Marine staff sergeant that called my parents who lived in Kansas at the time um, and just, you know, gave them that quick, hey, your son's uh, seriously wounded. He's got shrapnel to the head, neck, face, leg, and buttocks. And that's what they got. That's all they told him. That's all they got. Um, and I think, was, they, I think they told him that I was in Germany. Okay. And hopefully getting... Like 10%. <laughs> yeah, hopefully getting transported in the next couple of days. And I'm not sure how many days it was, but I, I want to say I made it to Walter Reed maybe February... 11th, 9th. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a couple of days in between there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember that ride from Germany to Walter Reed though. In that bird? Wait, the medevac bird? Yes. Uh, did you have to pee? I had to pee, but I was in a lot of pain. Yeah. And I just remember like, give, it, give me more medicine. Yeah. Um, and you're stacked up. It's so uncomfortable. And oh, yeah, so at, the, uncomfortable. at the time, they're just bodies stacked on top yeah. of each other. It was completely packed. In the like C-17... Nose to tail. Completely, yeah, very, three, not very comfortable. Three, four bunks high. Yep. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, and you can't, like, there. there is a nurse that's walking around, and you can't really do anything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, everybody yeah. else is screaming. Like, yeah, everybody's yes. screaming. Everybody's got to pee. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but you can't move. You no. can't get out, like, you can't get out of it. You can't. They, well, do they keep an IV in you the whole time, I imagine? They're keeping oh, I didn't allow them to give me a catheter. Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I was like, if you fucking come near me with that thing, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. I, yeah, I told a, a surgeon once before I was getting a, an emergency appendectomy. He's like, "Well, I have to put a catheter in right after you go to sleep." I remember telling him, "It's joking around, like, well, you, at least you don't have to push it very far." He started laughing. The anesthesiologist just got so pissed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Military doctors like they don't like jokes apparently. I yeah. thought it was hilarious. I, that is pretty like, funny. You know, high as shit on Dilaudid and morphine. Yep. About to go into surgery. <laughs> That's crazy, man. So, so was, you, yeah. you, you get to your, uh, your 17 to Walter Reed. It's an uncomfortable journey. Absolutely. And then like, what's, what's going on in your head, in your head, this whole plane, 18 hour plane ride. I'm in, I'm in a lot of pain and I don't want to be here. So, I mean, that was, Yeah. Because I remember just being awake and going, man, man, this is super painful. I don't think I was quite aware still of what was going on, mm-hmm. honestly, because you're on so many drugs and stuff. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, uncomfortable trip. And you get to Walter Reed and how's your experience like coming off that bird? Um, wasn't too bad. No, not too bad. 
Were you greeted by anyone or? So my parents came a um, couple days after I got there and just. You know. And their reaction to more than just a buttocks wound. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember them being too crazy. I'm sure they were, but, um, and my little brother was, I want to say, he would have been a junior at the time. Mm-hmm. Junior? No, senior. It was a senior year of high school. Go, you should enlist. That's when I thought of that. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Abs- well, I was like, uh, finish the job, yeah. you know, but he actually did. Yeah. Oh, Oh, he did. Crazy. Um, Yeah, he joined and he went to Iraq and Afghanistan as a Marine as well. He was a mortarman, so. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. Carried on the legacy. Yeah, he carried it on. So everybody in my immediate family, except for my older brother, was in the Marines, so. Mm. Mm. Man. So so your parents came out to support you. That's amazing. Your brother, too. Yep. And like, talk to me about those initial stages for your journey to recovery? I think there was just a lot of not knowing. So I still had my leg. Um, Like I said, my eye was just had a patch over it. So I didn't know what the extent of that. Um, Could see like my arms and stuff, like they were, you know, shrapnel and stuff, pins and stuff in them, but really didn't know the extent of my wounds. Uh, Yeah. My leg was wrapped up. I had an external fixator on it for, I want to say three or four weeks. Okay. So I could move my foot. So when did they come in? So it was, so they kept on doing, you know, washouts every other day. Yeah. So that's why I've had a lot of surgeries. It's just because they're mm-hmm. cleaning my leg out, yeah. trying to save it. Or they're like, there's too much damage um, and it's infected. Oh. Like you could walk in the room and my family could like smell it. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, at least that, during that time, they didn't do a good job of cleaning me up because I was still dirty by the time I got to Walter Reed. Like, I just looked dirty. Seriously? Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised. They just left you in the bed filthy? <laughs> yeah, I was filthy. Yeah, it's, it's only to life save until you can get back yeah. home. Yeah. So, life save, so, well, I mean, that back home. So, I was, I was pretty filthy. Right I mean, not, not to mention just, you know, shrapnel and stuff looks dirty. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was like, um, one day they just had to, Tell my family, they're like, hey, if we don't amputate, he's going to die. So, all right, let's amputate. Mm-hmm. Let's make this happen. So, I mean, you know, waking up one day with a leg and the next day it's gone, like mm-hmm. a big ball of something wrapped up and you go, what? Mm-hmm. I'm 20 years old. Yeah. What am I doing the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. All these thoughts come in your head and I'm like, the only amputee I ever saw in my life was... I think it was in my uncle and he had a hook mm. for a hand. Yeah. And that, and that's got to be a scary vision. And I'm like, so. okay, I'm going to be like my uncle who all I really know him for is he smokes, smokes pipe tobacco. So here's my life. 20 years old. I'm going to be sitting in a chair smoking pipe tobacco. You know, you don't yeah, know. I mean, you don't have any idea. Those thoughts are just screaming at you at every moment. You know, I, you know I've told this guy a thousand times and probably everybody on this sh- that's listened to the show is I, I remember just breaking down the hospital one day, just crying oh, yeah. because I wasn't able to get my girlfriend at the time water at night. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just all these thoughts go through your head and it's, it's everything and everything, anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, I get that. It's a big fall too, that uh, from an ego point of view to yeah. in a personal point of view, right? I mean, you were, 
operating at the highest levels in the world, uh, you know, part of one of the most deadly military machines to, to ever exist, you know, the, the Marine Corps, the United States Marines, that's, you're at a certain level and you're out on the front lines doing these operations. And when you wake up, everything's changed. Yeah. So coming to terms with that and accepting that, especially at 20 years old, I mean, that's, it's really difficult to, to come to terms with, I would imagine. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think I was, I don't know if you can ever fully prepare for that, but from my upbringing and my parents, how they raised me, like mm-hmm. never quit yeah. all that stuff that was in me from a young age. Yeah. So I think that helped me mm-hmm. mentally, but like you said, you know, just coming to terms with it. I'm not a big crier. I'm not just never been, but I cried mm-hmm. and said, you know, all right. Yeah. All right. What's next? You go from being high speed Marine. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm in, the, I'm in, the, you know, I could beat anybody in this three mile race or whatever. I can do yeah, this yeah. many pull ups and five foot six. Like nobody could beat me at yeah. this. Like feeling that you're like Captain America yeah. or somebody, you know, Unstoppable. like, yeah. And then you go to like lying in a bed and you can't even care for yourself. And, and you know, another big part of that is that you go from being a much needed member of a team mm. to all of a sudden being on the outside of it mm. and like knowing where your path was going, being, being deployments and everything's rotation structured and accountability for everything to all of a sudden, now I don't have a leg. Now I'm not in physical shape at all. And now I'm outside of this team. Mm. Yeah. That, that it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. So a lot of people can't recover from that. Absolutely. You know, so that having that no quit mentality sets you aside from the rest too. Mm. And I'm sure you get asked the question quite often is how did you make it through all of that? Uh, for me, I think just my wanting to get back to, uh, to life. And in my mind, I was going back. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen that way, but because there's a few doubts in my mind, the technology, all those things. And at that time, are you a burden? Yeah. yeah. Am, am I going to hurt somebody that. else? You know, yeah. uh, 2005, 2006, there weren't a lot of amputees staying in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, it was early. Um, Technology wasn't quite there. It was it was all right. But I mean, it, prior it, to the war, it wasn't great. They were still doing wooden legs. Yeah, most people don't know. Twenty years ago, they were still doing wooden legs. It's crazy. That's crazy. Yes, in two thousand two. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. So the technology, uh, you know, had you know, since it was such a predominant issue, technology just skyrocketed. Mm. And, you know, oh, yeah. every year, still, yes, to day, still, the news coming out. It's came a long way. So you learn that lesson 20 years later, 10 years later, where the case may be, but you didn't, you don't know that. No. The day one, you don't know. So that's what I always say when, when someone says like, how, well, how did you make this? I always say day by day. Like yes. I just, I just tackled the tasks that I had. Some of those were moment by moment. Like it was just like getting through the next hour, you know, the center for the intrepid had these like core days. I remember yep. everybody, you know, all these like just broken <laughs> individuals are just strewn out across the floor mm-hmm. doing sit-ups and stuff for a half hour. And you're just like, God, I'm going to die, you know, but you know, after those accomplishments, you get to look back on it and say, wow, I can't believe I've done that. Yeah. You know? And I'm sure you have had multiple hurdles like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, going, 
In the hospital for me, I lost a ton of weight. Well, like most people do. Mm-hmm. I went from about 160 to 110. Yeah. So extreme weight loss. I wasn't able to eat a lot. Some of the surgeries I'm throwing up all the time, you know. Um, so it's not comfortable uh, per se, but also just getting extremely weak and then starting back to like two pound yeah. weights yeah. and that going the worst. Oh, starting two that. like two pound dumbbells or five pound dumbbells and just like pressing. Yeah. Ah, and I'm trying to do pull ups and I'm like, I'm a Marine. I do 20 pull ups. No problem. Yeah. Not when you're that 110 is- pounds and no strength. Yeah. No That's a soul that. crusher, man. That crushes it's, your soul. Yeah. And having your parents have to feed you. Yeah. Get bathed by somebody else. I don't mind if it's a good looking nurse, but let's <laughs> see. Let's it, be honest. Me, I'm no. the opposite. You know, I'm like, I want two nurses, the good looking nurse that <laughs> yeah. only sees me at my best. <laughs> yeah. The bad looking nurse that wipes my ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, yeah. <laughs> but it truly is like a humbling experience. Like you going through all that early on in your life, like, oh man, I never want to have to do this again. But it sets you up. There's so many lessons to be learned. And it really showcases your character yeah. for who you are, right? Absolutely. I mean, that is that is a tough situation. So you walked through your injury. You you finally, the doctors, I'm assuming, told you what was going on at this point. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, earlier before the show that your eye was probably the most painful of yeah. the injuries that you had. So what happened there? Like, what was your exposure to that? What was your feeling then? I mean, your face, it's a different story. It's a different yeah. topic. Mm. So that was kind of like the, hey, we're going to take care of everything else first. Mm-hmm. And my eye was just covered up. So I didn't even know. My dad literally said, I can see, you know, <laughs> stuff inside your head uh, because there was just a hole. Um, but yeah, the doctors weren't even looking at it yet because it was like, you broke all these bones, you're missing your leg. Mm-hmm. So that was like an afterthought. So an ophthalmologist tried to take uh, skin from the back of my ear, make a flap. Well, that didn't work. There wasn't enough skin. Mm-hmm. So there's a plastic surgeon there at, uh, it was actually Bethesda. When mm-hmm. Bethesda and Walter Reed were separate at the time. Yeah. So most of my surgeries were done at Bethesda and then I'd go to Walter Reed for like physical therapy, occupational therapy. But there was a doctor there, Dr. Kumar, by the way. Uh, you know, Harold and Kumar. <laughs> um, but I always think it's funny, but he was, he was the best. Uh, he was, he was in the Navy and that guy, he worked probably 20 hours a day, you know, operating on soldiers, Marines, everybody coming in, uh, never complained, was always happy. So he did some stuff on my leg. He decided, Hey, I'm going to make this, we're going to do extra skin. So I had a skin flap. Trust me, it was horrible. It looked like a finger. A skin flap. So where was this? So the flap was like this and it just was, so they left that for a long time. So that's why I had so many surgeries because they put extra skin. There's way too much skin. So they put it in between your eyebrows? So it looked like this. So I have, this is all. So you're underneath your bottom. Left yeah. Eye. So it like held right here. Okay. So yeah. it was like the whole bottom like, left eyelid up yeah. to the bridge of the nose. Yeah. Wow. So the skin graft was like this hanging. So you know, imagine people looking at your face and going, what happened to your face? Yeah. I got that all the time, man. And that was, I mean, at How the t- did that make you feel? Oh, I mean, I didn't like it at first. You know, it's yeah. just like, well, I got blown up. 
Yeah. <laughs> this, this is what war looks like in yeah. a sense, you know? Um, but yeah, I had, and it well, probably in total, probably eight surgeries, but it wasn't until like maybe 2010 was the last one. Okay. So start the process in 2005. So it was like a five-year process of yeah. constantly going in and it was called debulking. So they're debulking the skin on the graft. Okay. So it slowly, you know, came from the finger. Then it was just bulky like this, but it looked like somebody had socked me in the eye. And, you know, the first thing people look at is your eyes. Most of the time they're looking at your eyes. So they're like, eyes are up here, Tim. I know exactly (laughs) what happened there. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, for me, it was, you know, it was hard. Yeah. I wasn't very confident for a while. And I, but I think about so many other people, you know, somebody that's a burn survivor goes through that. Yeah, but that is, that's a dangerous game all in itself. As an injured individual, you know, not to compare yourself to other people. Yeah. You know. But you do. And yeah, and and you do, but it really just devalues yourself and what you're going through as well. Yeah. Uh, that's a tough one. The face, yeah. the tape. Yeah, right in the face. Got it in the face. So, um, yeah, that was a challenge for me for a while is just getting over that. Like, mm-hmm. And obviously, being a new amputee, you know, you're, you're not confident enough yet to be like, I yeah. don't really care. It took me a little while to be confident, but after a while, it's like, I don't care. And you just don't notice as much. Anymore. Yeah, then you're like, so it's just second nature. When that ID blast went off, you mentioned how it happened to your eye. I just want you to tell the audience. So the glasses, the force of the blast uh, put my Wiley X glasses. Oh no. Which I don't know if you guys are a fan, but you should reach out to them I was, if you haven't already. But I was sponsored by them. So, <laughs> so I will say save my eye, my eyelid gone. It saved my eye though. Okay. So, it was like the sunglasses with the foam pads, yeah. little foam pads. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you guys ever wore those Oakley goggles that were just complete shit yeah. and the heat just wore them out in like a week or two and they're... Dust. Uh-huh. So I was wearing those those th- that day. Um, one of my staff sergeants, he found the glasses like 50 yards down the road. Mm-hmm. And he, so he found them and... It had your eyeball on it? No, my 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 he's got both eyeballs, guys. My my eyeball's still here. (laughs) Actually, for a while, I joked that I said I'm missing my my eye, and it worked several times with people. People thought because they looked at my eye because it was damaged, and they're like, "Hey, are you missing your eye?" I'm like, "No, I'm not." Technology. Yeah, this is a robotic eyeball. Exactly, taking pictures right has X-ray vision. (laughs) So yeah, lens went through my eyelid, and um, it was gone. That's rough. So it's a good thing that you're out um, though. That's, I mean, a joke though was I don't produce tears because I said I'm not a crier. I honestly don't produce tears on this one because <laughs> I don't have that capability anymore. Ah, uh, so, <laughs> so, so I always said my joke is I lost my tear ducts in Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> I lost funny. my ability like, to cry. I love that one. It's yes. like, I, I've said that one before too. Yeah. And, you know, being a, a science background, I said it once uh, and they were like, yeah, well, actually, Taylor Ducks is where your, uh, the liquid drains. <laughs> and I was like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one though. So, uh, so talk, talk to me about your, I, yeah, your actual... Uh oh, we got a phone. It'll just going off. Is all. No worries. Um, 
So talk to me about your actual physical therapy that you were going through and relearning how to walk on your prosthetic. I would say, so my physical therapist, he liked to eat and he liked food. <laughs> so I kind of had to make my own stuff up, to be honest. And at the oh, time- that's unfortunate. Yeah. So I was like, okay, put those, uh, uh, what do you call them? Bungee cords on me and I'm going to run with you. Like I would make different things up because- mm. He was he was a physical therapist, been there for years. He's probably still there. Mm, um, <laughs> he did he didn't push me, but I found some physical therapists in there that would push me, you know, like I want to do more than just the basic stuff. Yeah. Um <clears throat> what was it? Roll on the mat for a while, do this. And I'm like, I want to do a little bit more, like mm. to push myself to get to the level. So there, there's a difference yeah. in, you know, combat related injuries. Um, and that's what makes the Center for the Intrepid so incredible, oh, right? Yeah. Is those physical therapists who come in are are used to those people who want to push themselves exponentially. And then you go to like, you know, Brook Army Medical or, you know, Bethesda, and you have, they're dealing with veterans on the most most day to day before that. And that's so early in the war too. Yeah, they didn't even, I don't think they even knew what to do at the time. So it's like, hey, let's let's roll you out. Um, but I did find a captain in the army. He was a PT. Uh, he was a Marine before, so. Mm. You guys got along. He, he was, he was, he was very fit and he wanted to work hard. So I was like, Hey, okay, dude, can you do this for me? Like, yeah. I want you to push me hard. So I'm like completely exhausted at the end of this. And I want to get out of here as soon as I can. Cause yeah. I don't want to stay here. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to stay. So, um, you know, you're up. Walking after injury, it was probably two months after my my stuff had healed enough to put a prosthetic on. And you're like, oh, this ain't that bad. I mean, it hurts like hell, Yeah, you know, when you first step in the leg. But, hey, it's not that, that bad. I've got my knee to walk and all that stuff. And, you know, slowly move to running and all that and then start getting into more activities. So, um, and then a lot of the physical therapy stuff, I would just go in and, you know, work out stuff that we already knew in the military or had done previously, like in sports, like I'm going to work out to, to get in a better place. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a crazy one though. That, uh, physical therapy was something that we all didn't want to do yeah. uh, every day, but it was such a requirement. Yeah. And I had occupational therapy too. So, uh, with my hands and stuff, getting, yeah. getting functionality back in my hands and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, the guy that did my occupational therapy is still there today. Uh, he's actually one of the founders of Wounded Warrior Project. So, oh, wow. Is uh, that how you... But so he was one of the first people that said, hey, you're doing this. Mm-hmm. So it was a bike ride in Key West, Florida. So I'm okay. at Walter Reed. Want to get you the out of the hospital. Ride. Yeah. We want to get you out of the hospital. Ride a bike. I'm like, Harvey, I got one leg, dude. I don't have a prosthetic yet. I had just had a revision on my leg. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you ride a bike with one leg, an upright bike? It's like, you just clip in. I'm like, all right, I'm in. So I clipped in and it's like, well, it's not that bad. You know, you can ride with one leg. Yeah. So figured it out. That kind of got me out and, you know, different activities got me out and seeing other people like, oh, this guy, this Marine's missing two legs or this soldier's missing three limbs. You know, you see all that and you're like, all right, I got to push myself a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they are. So why am I not, you know, so make it a little bit of competition, but um, yeah. Um, so that was your first exposure to Wounded Warrior Project. Well, first exposure was in the hospital bed and they delivered backpack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which Juan is- Juan Arredondo? No. Was it him at the time? No, because he, <laughs> no, he's, he was in San Antonio at yeah, the time. Okay. He, he oh, was- Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's funny. Because <laughs> actually he was injured the same month, same year as me. Okay. But he came to San Antonio when Oswald to read. So we never that's met funny. until we worked together like 2011. So, mm. Wow. He's a fantastic guy. He is. I just talked to him not too long ago. One arm. <laughs> yeah, he will tell you. Juan arm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Juan arm. So, so talk to us about your journey into Wounded Warrior Project. So I would say for me, they helped me a lot mm. when I was in the hospital and some of my worst times. Like really they said, here's a backpack. There's a CD player. And at the time, CDs were cool back then. Uh, I had one CD, I think, over in Iraq that was probably a burned copy. It was Evanescence. Still love <laughs> Hell yeah. Still yeah. love Evanescence today. Absolutely. Um, actually got to see her in concert in San Antonio at the Sunken Garden. And amazing. That'd, that'd, uh, that'd but there was, yeah, I, I listened to one CD my whole time over there. But then when I was in the hospital, I listened to that because I had a CD player now that Wounded Warrior Project gave me. And I actually had col- clothes yeah. that I could wear and feel like normal again. Not the New Balance dad shoes they gave. Like, <laughs> oh, first of all, I have I have some of those. I remember getting those too. <laughs> they gave me the. I still like New Balance to this day. <laughs> by the way, when I got those shoes, I was like, first of all, there's fifty percent shoe here that I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, you got a lot of socks in here. I only need one. Yeah. Is there any righties in the hallway? Like anyone need a Yeah, exactly. I do that sometimes now with my buddies. Like, hey, I'll take the right if you take the left. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I just need one sock. Just one sock. That's the way to do it. Some, you know, some captain, I was on base one day, he comes up to me and he's like, uh, why do you wear a sock on that foot? Yeah. And I looked at him and I go, why do you wear socks? <laughs> he couldn't answer it. He's like, well, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why we wear socks. Because I just do. I wasn't expecting a follow-up. It gets Sorry. cold sometimes. <laughs> so what do you do for Wounded Warrior Project? So really my job is getting, really presenting our programs mm-hmm. to the public, to potential uh, alumni, as we call them. Is once you sign up, your alumni and family support members. Mm. Um, but really raising awareness, not only for our resources, but resources in the community. Like my biggest thing is I want a veteran to be successful mm-hmm. after injury, illness, whatever it may be. Like find your new passion and purpose. Because that's, you know, once you leave the military, you're like, that's all I know. Yeah. Well, find what's next in your life. And that's for people that have worked 20 years. They have a hard time. Mm-hmm. Hard Even some time. people that were four or five years and just like- Combat wounded sets you in a different men- mentality. You know, um, you got to move forward. And we have so many benefits, not only through us, but other organizations. Like the last probably 11 years of my life have been dedicated to finding out those resources, like in the community across the country. I I honestly don't care if you come to Wounded Warrior Project. If you're not, if that's not the right- fit for you. you. Yeah. If there's something else, I'm going to find it. Um, so really just educating the public, 
um, visiting patients in the hospital, taking care of them like I was taking care of, mm-hmm. um, making sure their families don't have, you know, there's a gap in between the military and kind of taking care of families, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I've, I've helped families come from Thailand to San Antonio because they had a family member that was, had cancer and was dying. So kind of bridging the gap. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, getting involved in some different efforts in the community. So working as a community to help people, not siloing the services we have. So um, a lot of people aren't familiar, but we grant organizations that do things outside of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, this past year was $5.8 million to 28 different organizations um, that are doing great things outside of what we're doing, like taking care of... Because every... You know, no one could do everything. Absolutely. We actually there, just had this. There is not one yeah. size fits all for a veteran. They come out and like. Literally, no. that was the terminology used too. It's yeah. not one size fits all. There's nothing. You know, you need to have those niche markets that are able to attack directly um, some of these issues. Um, and it's great. But Wounded Warrior Project has always been kind of the 911, I feel like, for, for a lot, especially during the early stages, yeah. right? You called Wounded Warrior Project if... You know, you had a girlfriend that was out of state and you wanted to get these guys to visit you because the military only purchases family tickets, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. So uh, incredible organization. And I think the um, it's very intricate in everybody's journey in the very first stages, because no matter who you are, you get that backpack. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And they, and they come around and, and, and usually it's someone such as yourself who's experienced something like that. Mm-hmm. The biggest uh, thing for me when I was in the hospital wasn't the, you know, the generals and everybody who came gave a coin or whatever like that. It was the guy that had the backpack (laughs) that had a missing leg. And I was like, hey, bro, do you mind if I pick your brain for a couple minutes? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, mentoring people through that process. Like, I remember crazy. uh, There was a guy that came in. He was in full uniform. Like, what are you doing here, dude? Who are you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm active duty. I lost my leg. I'm still in the Marine Corps. So like seeing those people come in that have already gone through it. Most inspiring. Oh yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, I can can get there. Yeah. Yeah. I can get there. So. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you love what you do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I get to help people every day. Yeah. That's Um, great. That's great. What else is uh, an, another amazing part of Wounded Warrior Project that you've helped imp- implement or drive? I would, well, I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> Top <laughs> secret. We'll edit and post. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I just, being part of some of the different things that we've pushed forward as an organization with other organizations, mm-hmm. like legislative stuff. Okay. I don't know if we can, can yeah. I say that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the PAC DAC, which was recently. Yeah, you're definitely able to showcase some of the amazing changes that have been. And then like uh, for me during my, like TS July, Mm. uh, Traumatic Service Members Group Life Insurance, that was a huge thing that the organization pushed and it's helped thousands of people with a lot of money. Yeah. Um, You know, because of the the seriousness of their wounds and stuff to help them financially and kind Mm. of set them up. Can you explain TSGLI a little bit? Because I know there's a lot of people who don't even know. So uh, traumatic service members group life insurance. So really this was put in place. Um, We all sign up and we 
sign up for the service members group life insurance, which is up to $400,000 or it was at the time. Um, so this is really to help those that have lost limbs, organs, have been in hospitals for 15 to 30 days. Really, it's kind of to supplement mm-hmm. income. So it's up to $100,000 um, for different injuries. Um, and the qualifiers? Loss of limb was definitely one. Mm-hmm. Um, activities of daily living for a certain amount of time. I want to say uh, hospital stays of like 30 days or more. I think it's greater than 30 days. Greater than 30 days. And if you need assistance for three or more primary uh, tasks throughout your yes. life. So, so like the a- ADLs. Yeah. Prescription fix. Yeah. yeah. Groceries. Um, but they'll supplement your income. So say if you're an active duty service member, you sustain a head injury and you're in a coma for 35 days. Well, your family is not, you know, they're receiving your paycheck at, the, at that same time, but there's a lot more going on in the background. So the military will give you a little stipend of, of cash in order to help cover those costs and, and any additional costs you might run into. So our great benefits out there that no yeah. one hears. Oh no, no one hears. And I like we try to educate people on that stuff for sure. But that was like big to me because I didn't. It came out when I was in the hospital. Like I'm going through this and like what? What is this? And that was something Wounded Warrior helped stand up. Yeah, with the- there was actually uh, two guys that both. One of them lost his legs above the knee. His name was Heath Calhoun. He was actually uh, did like Paralympic. Uh, mono skiing. Oh, damn. Uh, and then Those he, things look so freaking dangerous. And then the other guy was Ryan Kelly and he was below the knee. Yeah. Um, and I think he was talking to Ryan one day and he said, man, my family would be better off if I died because they would have got the $400,000. So that was what kind of sparked. And then some of our leaders in the organization at the time were like, all right, you guys need to tell a story and we yeah. need to, we need to go push this. And so that really pushed, sparked that, like, mm. hey. That's amazing. Um, and if you think about all the costs that families incur while one of their family members is in the hospital, I mean, it's, if there weren't all these different nonprofits helping out, they would be paying. There's a lot of people that don't understand that. Thousands you know, your, and thousands of dollars. Are coming and spending a month or two yeah. away from their jobs, you know, pulling kids out of school. Yeah. Like there is so many things Yep. You know, and and it's great to have organizations out there um, that can help facilitate oh, yeah. um, being at peace a little bit while you're doing your recovery. Absolutely. Because really focus on whoever that is in your family to get better. Mm-hmm. But then they have to start focusing on themselves too to take care of themselves because yeah. a lot of families neglect themselves because mm-hmm. they're taking care of, you know, their loved one. Mm-hmm. So that self-care is really important. Yeah. I think, so my last question would be, and I, I know the answer to this, but I, I want everybody else to hear this, is do you think that helping other people through Wounded Warrior Project help you on your journey to recovery? I would say absolutely it helped me. Um, it's therapeutic to me to help somebody else and tell them, hey, maybe don't do this because I did it. <laughs> I tried this. It didn't work. It is my opinion, but I can tell you a lot of things that I went through and made the wrong decisions don't do that. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> go to the, go this way first. <laughs> it's outstanding uh, being a mentor. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. Well, Tim, it's been fabulous having you on the show. Is there anything that you'd like to tell the audience, you know, where to find you? Any direct messages? No, I've, uh, 
you can find me in San Antonio most most likely in my office. Uh, Instagram. No Instagram. Okay. No Facebook. Okay. I am on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, you can find me in my office, or you can find me at my home. I live in Bernie, so okay. Come visit me, Tim Horton, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thanks for being on the show today, Tim. You're a truly inspirational person. Seriously, watching people who have gone through so much and continue to give back is it's inspiring for all of us. So, thank you for what you do. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate Absolutely, it, brother. That's great. This has been the Medivac Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Bye. See you, everybody. <laughs>